So tonight we begin our study of Ecclesiastes, and our first task is to find the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> we like to start simple here. So if you uh, can find Psalms, that's a good starting point. Usually you can find the Psalms somewhere in the middle there, middle left. Find Psalms and then start turning right. Then you're going to find Proverbs, and then you're going to run right into Ecclesiastes. Interesting name, Ecclesiastes. Uh, the Greek word uh, for church is ecclesia. If you go to seminary and you take all these different courses, uh, you know, you're a rookie in seminary, I remember that, and I'm hearing all these classes, I, I've never, I don't even know what they're talking about. Soteriology. Well, that's salvation. Soteria. Salvation. But they can't call it salvation, they've got to call it soteriology because you've paid a lot of money to get in seminary and, you know, you feel better about yourself. Uh, you know, they could say it's uh, Church 101, but they don't call it Church 101. They call it Ecclesiology 101. It's Church 101, basic church stuff, you see? Uh, ecclesia, it's the, uh, it's the gathering. It's the called out ones. Um, that's where this term comes from for Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes can be a mysterious book. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a book that is easily misinterpreted. It is a book that is easily misunderstood. Uh, it is a book that um, can seem to be scattered. Uh, one of the things you do when you do Bible study uh, is, when you're, gonna, when you're gonna study a book, one of the things you do is you read it, and then you read it through, and you read it through again, you read it through, and you get a sense of the book, and then what you do is you want to outline the book, because there, there, there is usually an outline. There is usually a pattern. Uh, when you study Paul's New Testament epistles, uh, he was writing that for a reason. And usually in Paul's epistles, like in Ephesians, uh, you got six chapters, uh, you know, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, you know, to the church and at Ephesus. That was a circular letter that they would pass around to all the churches. Um, and the first three chapters are all about the truth of God and what he has done. Those are the first three chapters. It's doctrine. It's just solid truth and teaching about who God is and what he's done in our lives. And then the last three chapters are application of who God is. Because we're not just to hear the word, we're to do the word. I'm just not to know what God says. I'm to apply what God says. God is there. And he's done this in my life, and he wants to do this in my life. But see, that he, doesn't, he doesn't want me just to know that. He wants that to make a difference in how I live my life at home with my wife and with my kids. That should change me. But, so the New Testament epistles, there's an outline. They're pretty easy to follow. Ecclesiastes is hard to outline. You can take one or two or three passes. Ecclesiastes, at first pass, it's sort of like watching a drunk driver leaving a New Year's party um, trying to get home. I mean, it's just, it's just it, it seems random. It's, it, I mean, that's how it strikes me. You read it and go, where, where is this guy going? And the other thing about Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, 
it, it, it doesn't, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it seems so negative. It, it seems like it's such a downer. Uh, take a look at Ecclesiastes, how he starts. Ecclesiastes 1.1. Uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Norman Vincent Peale never started a sermon like this. Norman Vincent Peale, uh, he's been dead a long time, but he did a book years ago called The Power of Positive Thinking. Uh, uh, then along came Robert Schuller, The Crystal Cathedral. Turn your scars into stars, was one of his quotes. Uh, very positive, very uplifting. Um, uh, Joel Osteen, uh, very, very uh, positive message, you know, charge you up, all that. that that's not here. Uh, Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that'll make your day. Uh, vanity, what does that mean? It's not, it's, it's not vanity in sense of, uh, you know, we'll say beauty is vain. People that spend a lot of time in front of the mirror and, you know, that's, that, that's just, okay. Yeah, you know, touch it up, do what you can do, but move on with life. You know, you're getting miles on the tires. There's not a lot you can do about it. Uh, this isn't that kind of vanity. This vanity, and we'll get into this in a minute, this vanity that he's talking about, it has the idea of futility. It has the idea of... Um, of uh, emptiness, it has the idea of a vapor, that, that life ultimately is empty, that is meaningless, and then it is a vapor. James 4.14 uh, says your life is like a vapor that appears and then vanishes and you're gone and nobody remembers. Well, that'll build your self-esteem, won't it? But it's true. Uh, you probably remember your grandfather, but what about your great-grandfather? And, and what do you know about your great-great-grandfather and your great-great-great-grandfather? And what, you don't know anything unless you're on Ancestry.com and whatever you can find out is where they were born and all that and when they immigrated and all that stuff, and that's pretty much it. But you don't know much about them if you know anything. You see? They lived, they died, they worked. No, no they lived... I got that wrong. <laughs> it's pretty basic, and I got it wrong. Can, well, everything's futile. Uh, they, uh, let's get this right. They were born, they lived, they worked, they worked hard, and then they died, and nobody remembers them. That's what's going to happen to you. And that's what's going to happen to me. Uh, it seems really negative. It seems like a downer, doesn't it? The words of the preacher, uh, Kohaleth, uh, it, it, it can mean preacher, it can mean teacher, it can mean uh, one who is a gatherer, it can mean one who is a searcher, uh, the idea of preacher or teacher uh, is accurate because, as we'll see in a minute, who this is referring to is Solomon. Now, when you, when you get into studying Ecclesiastes and different commentators and all this, uh, 
pretty much the consensus is there's no hands down Solomon wrote this thing. But then there are some guys saying, oh, well, because of this. No, it wasn't Solomon. It was an editor. It was all. The, okay, fine. Solomon wrote it. Okay. And we're going to see this in a minute. Uh, the description that he gives of himself, it was Solomon who wrote this, the son of David. Um, he calls himself the preacher or the teacher. Uh, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is empty. All is meaningless. Uh, all is a vapor. All is fleeting. All is frustrating. And that sounds negative, but isn't that really, I mean, there's a lot to be said that that's a lot of our lives. Uh, we, uh, we work hard. We scramble. Uh, we try to succeed. We try to accomplish. Um, we're, we're shooting for, to provide for our families. We're looking for some happiness. And, uh, but man, uh, life can be so frustrating. It, it can be like a treadmill. It can be that uh, three steps forward, two steps backwards. And then sometimes it's two steps forward and it's eight steps backwards. It, it's just, it's a grind. It's a battle. And, and, and it is. Um, If this book is so negative, the question is, why study Ecclesiastes? I, I would like tonight to pose some questions as, as we start this study, and uh, we're, we're going to try and cover chapter 1 tonight, but we've got to kind of get a running start at this in order to really understand what's going on in this book. Um, it's a significant book. And I will tell you up front, there is more to it than emptiness and meaninglessness and frustration and futility. There's a lot more there. There's an incredible amount here that will, quite frankly, lift your heart and lift your spirit, uh, give you uh, steadiness and security as you move through your life and what you're facing in your life on every front. Um, Philip Ryken does a tremendous job, and, and again, I'm going to pose here five questions tonight. The first one is, why study Ecclesiastes? Philip Ryken is uh, now president of Wheaton College. They've been in the news as of late. But before he was president of Wheaton, he was pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Uh, Excellent scholar, excellent preacher, um, did an excellent commentary in Ecclesiastes. And his, his section on Ecclesiastes and why I study it is so good, I just decided I was going to read it to you tonight because he sums it up so well. So I'm quoting Riken here. He's got one, two, three, four, five reasons we should study Ecclesiastes. Number one, he says we should study Ecclesiastes because it is honest about the troubles of life. You've got trouble and I've got trouble. It's honest about the troubles of life. It doesn't skirt them. It doesn't ignore them. It doesn't act like they don't exist. They're there and, they're, and, they're, and they bring pressure and they crush us, the troubles of life. So number one, we should study Ecclesiastes because it is honest about the troubles of life. So honest, Riken writes, that the great American novelist Herman Melville once called it the truest of all books. More than anything else in the Bible, Ecclesiastes captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world. 
God created the world to be perfect, but because there was rebellion between Adam and Eve against Almighty God, that perfect world was broken. And as a result, uh, every person has been born in sin. Sin entered the world. It affected them. They were cast out of the garden. Their lives were broken. We are all conceived in sin. We're born in sin. We all have sin natures. That's why you never have to teach a two-year-old to lie. You never have to teach a two-year-old uh, to... Uh, uh, they're just little sinners. Are they not? They're just self-centered little punks is what they are. They're cute, but they're self-centered. They're selfish. It's in them. It's in you. It's in me. You see? I remember back in the 60s, they had what they called the Gestalt Prayer. It came out of Big Sur, California. It went like, a guy named Fritz Perls wrote this. There were posters... It, 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 just, it just took off. All college dorm rooms. You'd walk down 20 rooms and half of them would have a poster with the gestalt prayer. I do my thing. And you do yours. <laughs> and if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that sounds so hip. At least it did back then. Hey, man, hey, man, no, no, that's cool, that's cool. Yeah, good, you do your thing, I'll do my, yeah, that's, that's cool. Well, you try getting married and do that. <laughs> you do your thing, and I do mine. That doesn't work in a marriage. If you're doing your thing, she's doing her thing, you're not going to make it. Not even close. And I'll tell you what. If by chance you find each other, it's not beautiful. It's nuclear war. <laughs> See, the other way you could translate that uh, is uh, you be selfish and I'll be selfish. And if by chance we find each other, it didn't work. Reichen says, more than anything else in the Bible, Ecclesiastes captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world. Why are we selfish? Because we live in a fallen world, a broken world, and we are fallen people, and we are broken people. We're all about ourselves. Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. The Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, you see. Someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, your strength, all your might. And the second is the same as the first. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you love your neighbor as yourself, what do you do? You see how you can serve. You see how you can meet their needs. He said, that encapsulates, that summarizes the entire law and the prophets. Ecclesiastes is honest about the troubles of life. Riken says it's honest about the drudgery of work, the injustice of government, the dissatisfaction of foolish pleasure, and the mind-numbing tedium of everyday life. Those are real-life issues, and every guy in this room deals with them. That's the treadmill of our existence. Ecclesiastes deals with those things. Secondly, we should also study Ecclesiastes to learn what will happen to us if we choose what the world tries to offer 
instead of what God has to give. Let me say that again. We study Ecclesiastes to learn what will happen to us if we choose what the world tries to offer instead of what God has to give. We tend to think God's a killjoy. He's always saying no. He wants to cramp our style. He doesn't want us to have a good time. Nothing could be further from the truth. We'll see that in Ecclesiastes. In thy presence, there is fullness of joy. In thy right hand, there are pleasures forever. Not temporary, forever. Riken says, the writer of this book, Solomon, had more money, enjoyed more pleasure, and possessed more human wisdom than anyone else in the world, yet everything still ended in frustration. It, it's really fascinating. We'll see this next week in chapter 2, where Solomon went on a hunt. He went on a hunt for pleasure. Uh, he, he, it, it, you talk about accumulating. He didn't have a dream house. He had dream houses. Uh, he had gardens that were just beyond comprehension. He had ships sailing the seas, bringing in exotic plants, trees. Uh, he, he, uh, the guy's wealth was staggering. The Queen of Sheba heard about his wealth and his wisdom, and she traveled to visit him, and when she saw what he had, she said, the half was not described to me. She, was, she, she, was, she couldn't even speak what she saw. Uh, whatever it is you're hoping to get or whatever it is you have, I, Solomon had you beat in, in infinite ways. He had more women than you've ever thought about. 700 wives and 300 concubines. I think he was exhausted. <laughs> the text doesn't say that, but I'm, I'm just kind of putting that together. Uh, he went after everything. Full time, he went after it 100 miles an hour trying to achieve everything that there was to have and achieve and enjoy in life. And he gets to the end of chapter 2 and he says twice, after he got it all, he says, I hated my life. And he says again, I hated my life. So what it is that most of us are after, we're going to be disappointed. And we've seen this. We accumulate, we want this and this. And, uh, and it's great for a while. So uh, this uh, couple days ago, Alabama wins the national championship again. I think Nick Saban was at his fifth one, number five. Unbelievable. I think tied with Bear Bryant. That's, that's incredible. With who? I think Bear's got one. Bear's got six. Yeah. Bear's got six. Ah, well, then that explains why the next morning I saw an interview with him, and he said right after he won the fifth one, he said he wanted another one. So then my question is, what happens when he wins another one? What's going to happen? Years ago, the Lakers won two in a row, years and years ago. Pat Riley was the coach. And they were interviewing him, and they hadn't had that time. They hadn't been in lock that locker room three minutes. And how does it feel, coach? It feels great, but we're going to three-peat. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. You just two-peated. <laughs> you just won a second. That's unbelievable. What it takes to win two in a row? But... Can you savor this? Can you enjoy this for a week? Maybe two weeks? No, he hadn't been in there 15 minutes, and he's already on to the next one. See, oftentimes the things that we shoot for and the things that we strive for and the things that we work for, when we get there, it's not, what we, it's not quite what we had hoped. Whether it's work, 
whether it's a house, whether it's a car, whether it's this, and we all know this. We've all experienced it. There's always in our lives, whatever, uh, 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 you, you got the right spouse, you got the right wife, you know, we're going to have the perfect man. No, you're not, and you know you're not. Whatever it is we're after, there's always a little bit of disappointment because, because you see, it's always tainted. There, there's always some listeria in the, bill, in, in, in the bluebell, it seems like, somewhere. It's just, it's just somewhat tainted. When you get what you want, the best, it, there's always a, there, it's always just tainted. It's just a little bit off, is it not? Sure it is. Ecclesiastes deals with that. See, you guys have been dealing with that today, and you've been dealing with it for a week, and you've been dealing with it for months. You're just disappointed with where you are in life. Ecclesiastes takes that on. Number three, we should study Ecclesiastes because it asks the biggest and hardest questions that people still have today. It asks the biggest and hardest questions that people still have today. Like, what is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? Does God really care? Really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world and it's everywhere? Is life really worth living? Derek Kidner has written about Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is his base camp, but he is an explorer. His concern is with the boundaries of life and especially with questions that most of us would hesitate to push too far. Not Solomon. He's going to deal with hard questions uh, full out. Full out. Another reason to study Ecclesiastes, it will help us to worship the one true God. Riken says, for all of its sad disappointments and skeptical doubts, the book teaches many great truths about God. It presents him as the mighty creator and sovereign Lord, the transcendent and all-powerful ruler of the universe. The sovereignty of God is in Ecclesiastes. The providence of God is in Ecclesiastes. The goodness of God is in Ecclesiastes. We're going to see that tonight. It's there, and it's in strategic places. And it's our hope, and it's our stability, and it's our future. And it allows us to be genuinely optimistic when everything is falling apart around us. We are not in this by ourselves. Which leads to the last point of why we should study Ecclesiastes. This book teaches us, Riken says, how to live for God and not for ourselves. It gives us some of the basic principles we need to build a, a God-centered worldview like the goodness of creation and our own absolute dependence upon God. Uh, I, I am convinced that there is never a time in our lives where we are not being, where, where God is not forcing us to trust him. It's different for every guy in this room. Different circumstances, different issues. 
But you see, you can never quite get your arms around life. You can never quite get complete control of your life. You can never get control of, of the things that matter to you. Some areas you can, but there's always something that's out of whack. There's always something that's just not working and it's frustrating and it drives you nuts. And, and sometimes it, it, it's of such a strategic issue that it threatens a part of your existence or your livelihood, your health. And see, we are forced to trust God. Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians that, that he was given a thorn in the flesh, which he asked God to take away three times, and the Lord would not take it away. And one of the reasons he said that God would not take it away was that he might learn not to trust in himself, but in the God who raises the dead. If God doesn't come through for me in this area of my life, I am finished. I am utterly and completely dependent on the living God. And we all are every moment of our lives. You cannot breathe without him. But we tend to forget that. Those are reasons we should study Ecclesiastes. Now, second question. What is the key to Ecclesiastes? Um, and there is a key. Because again, this can be a very mysterious book and it can be, uh, it can be a puzzling book. Warren Wearsby has a great statement. He says this, Solomon has put the key to Ecclesiastes right at the front door. When he writes, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. When you hear a word repeated twice, it's for emphasis. The holy of what? Holies. That's to emphasize the holiness, absolute moral purity of God. It's for emphasis. Vanity of vanities, and then it's repeated. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's, it's there for a reason. There is, there is emphasis Wearsby says right out of the blocks in, in verse 2 of chapter 1, Solomon says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the key to the book. What's interesting, it's also the key to the back door of the book. The last chapter in Ecclesiastes is chapter 12. Flip over there with me. Because you see, it's also in the last chapter of the book. Uh, Ecclesiastes is is interesting because to really understand, um, to really get the key to Ecclesiastes, don't you hate it when someone's excited about a movie and they get so excited they tell you the end? <laughs> and you say, oh, shoot, what? I mean, you know, I'm not going to go see that. I mean, you just ruined it for me. Well, to, to really get Ecclesiastes as you begin, you got to go to the end. Notice, if you would, Ecclesiastes 12, in verse 8, we read this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, says the teacher, all is vanity. There it is again. All is a vapor. All is frustration. All is empty. All is meaningless. Okay? Now, you get into the... Uh, 
that back door unlocks his purpose in writing the book. He doesn't tell us the purpose up front. He tells us at the end. He takes us on this kind of this convoluted, crazy journey, but it's all methodical and it's very well thought out. Watch what he says in 9. In addition to being a wise man, and Solomon was a wise man, you kind of got his biography in the book of 1 Kings. And you know that he, uh, when his father died, he was anointed to be the king. God said, I'll give you anything that you ask me. And he didn't ask for wealth. He, didn't, he, he asked for wisdom. And God gave it to him. Solomon is the wisest man who's ever walked the face of the earth apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He had wisdom beyond anyone that you can think of, you can read, you can quote. He had a gift of wisdom that was astonishing. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher, the teacher, also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. So Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, but he's also the author of Song of Solomon, and he's also the author of Proverbs. It is... uh, It is thought that he wrote Song of Solomon in his younger years, that he assembled those Proverbs in the middle years of his life, and that he probably wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, after living life, after uh, he had a tremendous spiritual heritage. His father had given him everything that he needed in order to build the temple in Jerusalem for Almighty God. He had been given great wealth in addition to his wisdom. Uh, The wealth multiplied. Um, He had peace on every side for 40 years. So often when you read the history of of the kings of Israel that came after, they are always fighting wars. They're always fighting battles. They are always being threatened. For 40 years, he had no war. So as a result, his energies didn't go into fighting battles and protecting the nation and all that. But his energies went into um, pondering and arranging many proverbs. Verse 10, he also sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. So we have his words of truth in the Scripture. Uh, The words of wise men, verse 11, are like goads, like, uh, like a probe. If, if, uh, if you got some cattle and they won't move, you can just take a cattle prod and prod it. You can goad it. Uh, the words of wise men can prod us to do the right thing. They can prod us to wisdom. They can prod us to live skillfully instead of foolishly. The words of wise men are like prods, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. I like that. Oh, watch this. They are given by one shepherd. One shepherd? What's that about? Well, Solomon's dad had said to Solomon and to others, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, he got everything in my life covered. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, I shall not want. He's got my life and everything in my life that I need. It'll be there at the moment I need it because he's overseeing my life from beginning to end. Before I was born, before I was conceived, his hand was upon me. 
That's the one shepherd. Huh. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He uh, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me. He gives me rest. He makes me lie down when I need it. Uh, you been laid off? No one wants to be laid off. Do you know Christ? Yeah, I do. He just made you lie down. And you're going to learn some lessons in this little season of life where you're out of the, out of the, 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 crazy, uh, the crazy pace that you've been living at. He's going to pull you out, and you're going to learn some lessons. He makes you lie down. And he knows what your needs are. He knows them better than you do. He knows what your mortgage payment is. And he'll supply it because my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. That's the one Lord. That's the shepherd. That's Jesus. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Sometimes my heart gets busted up. My life gets busted up. I get broken. And he mends my heart and he mends my life back together like a fisherman will mend a net alongside the Sea of Galilee. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I lose my wife, I lose a child, I lose someone near and dear to me. Even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. He's in your front, he's in your back, he's on both flanks. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you, I will sustain you, I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. That's the one shepherd, that's Jesus. Some of our Bibles, when we get them, the words of Christ are in red. Your whole Bible ought to be in red. It's all given by one shepherd. Yeah, you will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You got enemies? God never says he'll take away your enemies. He just says, I'll provide for you and take care for, of you and your family in the presence of your enemies. That's what he does. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Well, what about the disappointments? What about the, the tragedies? Because, because bad things happen to good people who love Christ. But see, here's the thing about our God and our Savior, is that he is so great that he takes even the worst things. He takes even the bad things that happen, and he turns them to good. And we know, Romans 8, 28, that God causes, doesn't allow, he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So he's got my whole life covered, the one shepherd. And the one shepherd is the one who is giving Solomon these wise words and these proverbs which are inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Ah, but beyond this, verse 12, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless. See, but beyond this, my son, beyond what? Well, see, there are many books, but there's only one book that's God-breathed. This is the book that is above every book. It's the Word of God. It still is the Word of God. It is not an idle word for you, Deuteronomy 32. It is your life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, beyond this, my son, beyond this, the word of God, 
by given by one shepherd, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, is it not? And excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body because all you can get in those other books, not that they're not valuable and not that we shouldn't read them, but know this, it's the wisdom of men. And the scripture says that the foolishness of God is better than the wisdom of men. It's just men. And what do we know? Not much. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fourteen times in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the fear of God. Not that you're terrified of him, but that you're in awe of his greatness and who he is and what he has done, that he sent his son to die in our place and to give us eternal life through Jesus Christ. When all has been heard, the message is this. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Everyone will stand before God and enter into judgment. Unless you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and his offer of forgiveness to save you from your sins. If we confess Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10, I delivered you as of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 at one time, and lastly, he appeared to me, Paul says. That's the gospel, you see? And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved because what he did was you won't come in the judgment because he took the judgment that should have been given to us. He took it upon him and he paid for it in our place. So you see, we will not enter into judgment because he took our judgment and he took the wrath that should have been given to us upon him. And it's been paid in full. That's unbelievable. You see? The only uh, judgment that Christians enter into is called the Bema Seat, which is a judgment of rewards. But we don't have time to get into that. That's the greatest news in all the world. Uh, we get so upset by injustice, and there's a lot of injustice in the world. It's all going to be handled. It's all going to be handled. All judgment has been given unto the Son. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? And he shall. Absolute justice. Laid out exactly, exactly according to the dictates of the character of God. And no one can cast aspersion on what he has done. Now this is our God. Um, you see, I didn't know that was in Ecclesiastes. Well, it is. Um, you guys still with me? This is a book. There's some, hey, let me tell you something. There's some prime rib and potatoes in this book. This is not Dairy Queen stuff. This is not frozen yogurt. This is not tofu. What, whatever that might be. I've never had it. Or is it faux too? I don't know. Here's the third question. You guys follow me? Okay, third question. What are the key phrases and words 
in Ecclesiastes. And here, I want to go back to chapter 1. Because he's... He, he, he's done this vanity of vanity things, thing, and, and now he's going to touch on some things uh, right out of the blocks here that are phrases and perhaps concepts we don't often talk about. Once again, I return to Warren Wearsby. Wearsby says, um, there are several key words and phrases that are used repeatedly in, in Ecclesiastes, and you'll see them even in the first chapter. And let, let's just point them out, and then we'll read the text, and we'll see them, and then we'll already have a definition of them when we read it. Is that all right? What are you going to say? No? <laughs> Can we go along with that? Okay. Okay. Uh, the first one, as we points out, we've already seen it, is vanity of vanities. Uh, it's used 38 times in this book. As we've said, it, uh, it means emptiness, futility. It means vapor. It can mean, it has many other synonyms. It's meaninglessness. At times, do you ever, do you ever in, in your heart of hearts, do you ever feel like all that you're doing is kind of meaningless? This is why guys, they want to switch careers. Or this, this isn't doing it for me. It, 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 I, don't see, I don't see the worth of it. I don't see the meaning in it. We don't want to waste our lives. Um, However, this vanity of vanities, it's not, it's not Solomon's final conclusion. We'll get back to that in a minute. There's another phrase, under the sun. Uh, Wiersbe says, you'll find this 29 times, along with the phrase, under heaven. It defines the outlook of the writer as he looks at life, watch this, from a human perspective, and not necessarily from heaven's point of view. Uh, this is really important. You, you'll see there in verse 3, what advantage does a man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Ray, Ray Stedman, in his little commentary on Ecclesiastes, on the first page of the book, says this. We must see one, one thing right from the beginning. This book, Ecclesiastes, is an examination of secular wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so when he's saying vanity of vanities, what he's talking about is not God's wisdom. He's talking about secular wisdom. We've talked about secularism before. What is secularism? We live in a secular nation. We live in a secular nation with a secular educational system. Uh, everything is secular. Everything is secular. Secular. What does that mean? The secular individual, the secular philosophy believes this is the only world that there is under the sun. And this is not the only world that there is. Jesus constantly was talking about there is another world. He came from another world. He was going to another world. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come to you again and receive you unto myself. You see? There's another world. This is not all there is. Stebman goes on and says this. One of its key phrases is the continual rep... rep um, ah, I, I missed a sentence. The book clearly states at the outset that it limits itself primarily to things which are apparent only to the natural mind under the sun. 
Ecclesiastes then is a summation of what man is able to discern under the sun, that is, in the visible world. The book does not consider revelation that comes from beyond man's powers of observation and reason, but only as a contrast to what the natural mind observes. Uh, another way of putting it is uh, Gleason Archer, the great Old Testament scholar, said, uh, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes writes to convince men of the uselessness of any worldview which does not rise above the horizon of man himself. Man is not the center, God is the center. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher of 100 and now 25 years ago, wrote this. He said, concerning Solomon's outlook in Ecclesiastes, this man has been living through all these experiences under the sun, concerned with nothing above the sun, until there came a moment in which he had seen the whole of life, and there was something that he found out that was over the sun. It is only as a man takes account of that which is over the sun, as well as that which is under the sun, that things under the sun are seen in their true light. Uh, quickly, a couple other phrases. Uh, profit, profit. Some of you guys just woke up. P-R-O-F-I-T. You're a little concerned these days about profit. You're watching that stock market. You're watching China. Well, hey, we, we all want some profit. You got to have it. Uh, Wisby says the, the Hebrew word yatron, usually translated profit, is used 10 times in Ecclesiastes. It is used nowhere else in the Old Testament, and its basic meaning is that which is left over. Makes sense. The word profit is just the opposite of vanity. If you work and you have no profit, it's in vain. You, you got you to have some return. You got to make a living. You got to feed your family. <coughs> Solomon asked, in light of all the puzzles and problems of life, what is the advantage of living? Is there any gain in continuing to live? Uh, you have the word labor, labor, work. At least 11 different Hebrew words are translated labor in the authorized version. Uh, it's used 23 times in Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew word omal. Now watch this. It means to toil to the point of exhaustion and yet experience little or no fulfillment in your work. Wow. First Corinthians 15, 58 says, those who labor gladly in the will of God, they know that labor for him is not in vain. And it doesn't matter what kind of labor it is. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, what do you do? What kind of work do you do? You build bridges? You do landscape work? Put in sewer lines? What do you do? You a doctor? You a firefighter? Doesn't matter what you do. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. You see? And he's got his eye on you, and he rewards you for your work. Okay. Uh, you have the word man. We're going to see it in a minute. Uh, we're going to see, this is the familiar Hebrew word that's actually Adam or Adam, refers to man as made from the earth. Um, 
we, we, are, we are sons of man, we are sons of Adam, and because we're sons of Adam, we're all born with sin natures, and we're all sinners, and we're all selfish. We've already talked about this, and I'm going to show you this in a minute. Um, let me give you the fourth question, and then we're going to read uh, Ecclesiastes 1. What is the author Solomon attempting to do? And quite frankly, I already hit this in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 8 through 14. Uh, I'm watching that clock, and I've got to cover this to end on a positive note. Um, so I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, let's go to Ecclesiastes 1. Okay, now that we define some terms. Solomon says in verse 3, What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Now he's, and let me tell you what he's going to do here. In, in verses uh, 3 down to verse uh, 11, he's going to talk about the cycles of life. The cycles. Life is full of cycles. Life is full of patterns. Life is full of rhythms. Okay? And he's going to delineate them for us. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Watch this. A generation goes, and a generation comes. That's true. When Theodore Roosevelt was 25, he was in the state legislature in Albany, New York. His wife was pregnant, and the message came. The baby came early. He had a little baby girl. He was so thrilled he could hardly contain himself. Heads to the house in New York City. Gets down there. And in the house, his mother was living with him. The baby is born one day. The next night, his mother dies. And the next day, his wife died. And he wrote in his diary, all the light has gone out of my life. Why? We all know this, but he experienced it. A generation comes. The generation pre before him went, and the generation he was married to went. It's part of life. It usually just doesn't happen like that, that quickly, all encapsulated in a short amount of time. But we know it's true. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. These are the cycles of creation, which, by the way, are outlined in Genesis chapter 8. God has set the days in place, the day and the night, the, the greater light for the day, the lesser light for the night. Genesis 8, after he destroyed the world by the flood, he said, I'll never do this again. He, he, he talked about heat and cold. He talked about disasters coming on the earth. He's got control over all of it. All of it. Spring, summer, winter, fall, he rules over it all. It's part of the cycle of life. Uh, blowing towards the south, then turning towards the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular course, the, wind re the winds return. Uh, I, I would never be a meteorologist because they're always talking about the wind. And, and, and it's always blowing. And it's always moving. Uh, and the jet stream is either, you know, this front's either coming in from Alaska or it's passing through or it just went on. I mean, you know, but it's always swirling. It's just, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. It's the cycle of life. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. And that's true. And the sea will never be full because God made a covenant and he said, I'll never destroy the earth by flood again, ever. 
So I don't care what human wisdom you're listening to, but whatever they're talking about will not happen because he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he controls creation. So you don't listen to the wisdom of men, you listen to the wisdom of God. Even in, even in Israel, in the south is the Dead Sea. To the north, you have Mount Hermon, and usually there's snow on the top, and that snowpack melts, and then that water trickles down and comes out into the Jordan River, and that Jordan flows into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is below sea level, and the Dead Sea, it never rises. That water's been going in there for thousands of years, and it never rises. Why? Because God controls it. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. You say, wait a minute, there's all kinds of things new under the sun. Solomon didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have the apps I have. He's not talking about inventions. Even in Solomon's day, there were inventions. You say, he's not talking about that. He's not disputing that. But what he's saying is, even with the invention, the new invention, the new technology, life remains the same. I, I'm astonished. I take my dog out at night, and I always take my iPhone. You know why? I got a flashlight on my phone. It's incredible. It's just staggering what I can do with my... The technology is incredible. But when Alexander Graham Bell, when his voice went over that wire, the guy on the other end was as astonished as we are with our iPhones. In fact, he said, and it's recorded in history, what hath God wrought? The same reaction... It's just, a, it's just a new technology. But really, it's the same reaction that we have, that they had, and that future generations will have. Oh, and by the way, when it says the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing, isn't that true with our iPhones? How come you check your email every three minutes? Because you think there might be something new that you're missing. Your, your ear is not satisfied with hearing. There may be a message on there. there uh, you get it. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new? Already has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of, early things, of earlier things, and there isn't. Hegel said history, history teaches us that men never learn from history. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So a man lives, he's born, he lives, he works, he works hard, he dies. But in between, you work hard and we go through the seasons of life and we go through the stages of life. And as we uh, get up and, you know, we're young bucks and we can work hard and do all this stuff and then you hit midlife and, you know, you start losing a step and you get on an escalator and you pull a hamstring and you know, it's kind of weird. You, you can't do what you used to do. And then you get in your 50s and 60s and then you're thinking, man, you know, I'm, I don't want to just stop, but I'll maybe just semi-retire or just, you know, all that. And maybe you've saved and you planned and all that. I, I think of my friend who had worked really hard and hit the retirement age and they were able to retire. And within weeks of retiring, his wife started showing signs of dementia. And all that travel they were gonna do, they never did. In fact, what he did was he spent the next 10 years, all those plans he had for retirement, he worked 30 years for that stuff. He worked hard and he was careful and he planned. He was a Christian man. None of that came to fruition because he was a godly man, so he took care of her. 
And he buried her 10 years later. You see, we don't know what's coming. Good, uh, bad things can happen to good people, to Christian people. But you see, God's at work. I'm out of time, but I've got to show you four things in Ecclesiastes that will encourage you. People say, you know, there's no rhythm to this book. There's no outline. I, wanna, I, I believe that there is, and I thank Walter Kaiser for showing this to me. If you want to write just, just four things down, there seems to be a division, four divisions, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 26. Now, I want to show something to you. Let's look at that. 1-1, one, one, and then turn to 2-26. You see, man, this is a negative book. This is a downer book. But when you get to 2-24 and 25 and 26, you're going to see him insert something. Because, you see, what he's talking about is the approach to living that is living under the sun and forgetting who created the sun. It's a life without God. It's a life that ignores God. It's a life that ignores God's truth. It's a life that ignores God's wisdom. And if that's what we do in our lives, then our lives will be empty, they will be meaningless, and they will be void. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain, in vanity. It is vain for you to rise up early and to work late. For he gives to his beloved, even in their sleep. You're not in this by yourself. Look at 224. After all this negative, get this. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? See, here's the truth of this. You can't, have, you can't have enjoyment. You can't have joy. You can't have peace without him. You can have a taste of peace. You can have a taste of joy, but it will be tainted with the listeria of frustration because there's always something missing. But you see, the message here is that God is the one who gives good gifts. God is the one who gives joy. God is the one who gives peace. And God is the one who gives satisfaction. So don't try to live without him. It's a futile life. 26, for to a person who is good in his sight, a person who trusts in him, not trying to earn his righteousness. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. These things come from God. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting, watch this, so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. In other words, he gives to the sinner so that they may give to the one who is God's man, God's person. Is that wild or what? Uh, the next section would be chapter 3, verse 1 to 520. 3, 1 to 520. 520 says, for he, uh, and I really want to pick it up in 18. And this is going to sound familiar. Here, after another, another discussion of the futility of life, watch this. Verse 18 of 5, here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. So we got all our kids and grandkids together at Christmas. 
having a great time. We're sitting down for a meal. As we're eating, we're going around, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? I was the last one. They said, so dad, what are you thankful for? I said, I'm thankful for Psalm 127 and 128. I'm experiencing it right now. My wife is like an olive plant. I got my kids and the man is blessed who has a meal with his children and he sees his grandkids and that's me and I'm good. And I meant it and I teared up when I said it. Because it didn't get any better than that. That's as good as it gets. If you're right in your relationships, you've got sweetness in your family. And we've all got screwed up families, but Jesus can fix families. Right? But when there's a sweetness and there's a kindness that he gives and he develops, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Furthermore, 19, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. You got a little money? You got a little money in the bank? Huh? You say, I don't have much money. Well, you got some. That's better than nothing. That's, that, that's the goodness of God to you. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied, which, watch this, with the gladness of his heart. <laughs> I don't have to worry. He's got me covered. Isaiah 46, 3, uh, 2. Listen to me, O house of uh, uh, Jacob and you remnant of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and carried from the womb. Watch this. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have borne you. I have carried you. I will bear you. I will carry you. When you're in a rest home and you don't know who you are, he will take you and usher you until your final breath into heaven, into the presence of Christ. He will not often consider the years of his life. Because you, you don't have to worry about your future because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart because you're walking with him. That's not futility. That is, that's joy unspeakable. And then you've got 6, 1 to 8, 15. Goes through the list of vanities, vanities, and then he comes to 15 of 8. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in the toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. We're under the sun, God's over the sun. And then you've got 8, 16 to 12, 14, which we've already looked at. One day we'll die, and one day we'll face judgment. But because of the greatness of Jesus Christ... We won't, we'll pass out of judgment and into life that is eternal. This is eternal life, to know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And you don't have to die, wait till you die to enjoy it. You can have it right now, today, as you walk through life because of the goodness of God who is over the Son, who created the Son, and controls all things under the Son. We are blessed men. So, Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement in an age where this nation is falling apart, the world is falling apart, in chaos, it's insane. Thank you for the sanity of your grace and mercy and wisdom to us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.